This is so interesting because sometimes people are like, oh, come and talk to us about money. And I stand up and I say, do you know what your money is for? I think people feel disappointed in that. But people don't know what they want money for, but they know that they want money. They just don't know why. And that's interesting. So, you know, you don't really need to have a lot of financial knowledge, but mindfulness is an, a critical component of good financial management. Just understanding what happens to you when you are in contact with money, that's really important and a really big clue is how you grew up. Why is it that so many of us have a dysfunctional relationship with money? Why aren't we taught at a younger age to have a healthier respect for the role money plays in our lives? To be more educated about tax and investing, debt. Why is it that this seems absent from most of our formative instruction and education? This is a question that fuels my guest on the show today, Chris van Heerden. Chris here is the host of the Fat Wallet podcast, an extremely popular personal financial management podcast and a great show. You really should find it and subscribe and listen to it. And also spends her days focusing on just one lap, just O-N-E-L-A-P.com. Just One Lap is a site that provides free resources for personal financial management education for advancing your own understanding of money matters especially for people who weren't lucky enough to be brought up in an environment or a family or a context where that was part of the conversation is our relationship with money nurture or nature this is what we discussed in the show today along with a number of other topics chris is a fantastic guest and i'm sure you'll enjoy this discussion just as much as i enjoyed recording it so if money makes the world go round, and we can debate whether or not it does, but if it does, and I think it does, why is it that me and so many other people are so financially illiterate or find it really difficult or not unnatural to manage personal finance? Why is this such a problem? It's not you. Okay, good. <laughs> I feel a bit better. <laughs> <laughs> There's huge incentive in the financial services industry. And there has been for many years, which I find it quite odd that nobody's talking about this. But there's huge incentive to keep people ignorant. Hmm. Where there's mystery, there's margin, right? You can introduce fear Hmm. and ignorance. You have control. Wow. And that is what's going on. And that's what we are trying very much to do something about. So you believe that this is really intentional. This is not just a result of people being lazy or not spending enough time educating themselves. You believe there's actually a kind of a force behind or at least a strong motivation around people's ignorance around money matters. It's capitalism. It's a result of capitalism. Okay. When you go, I'm going to start a business that delivers a service. What I'm going to do is I'm going to get the most out of this business the biggest margin that I can out of this business and that is my that's my role Mm. as a person who runs a business in a capitalist system Mm. it's it's not that I'm an evil person it's just that's my job I'm supposed to get margin that's right and if I get margin from making it seem like something is really complicated so that I can run it for you and you don't run it then I'm doing a good job and the cost of that is a cost that you are presumably willing to pay because here you are paying your money. And everybody wins except one person doesn't. Okay. Now, 
How much of that is combined with if you know if I cast my mind back to my childhood and going with my mom uh, to the bank to actually see the bank manager and these institutions, whether it was the building society <laughs> doing deposits or whatever it might be, there was this kind of very much ingrained DNA-based trust for centralized financial institutions, and you know you just knew that you could trust the bank. We even called them trust bank and those types <laughs> of things. You know. Has that eroded over time, and is there a combination of um, this kind of eroding trust in financial institutions coupled with the fact that I guess there's just so much more information and knowledge available to people that's sort of changing the dynamic between the bank and its customer? There's a culture there. I remember this with my parents. I see this with them now, although they're also really enjoying the changing of that culture. Mm. But during that time when we were growing up, like during the... I think if I can get a little bit political for something like the apartheid system to work, what you need is you need people who trust authority. Mm. You need people who are like, I will be told what to do and I will just go with that. Comfortable with that. And so you've got a really strong religious society Mm. where there are, you know, people up front, men usually who are saying, this is how we are supposed to live. Mm -hmm. Then you've got a really strong government with men up top who are saying, this is how we're supposed to live. And then that filters through to these big organizations. And so there was this culture in this country. And I think in most of the world, I don't think it's pretty unique to us. But there was this culture where you trust the person in authority because you assume that they have your best intentions at heart. Yeah. And and that needed to be the case for that political system to have any sort of traction. 100%. And, and I think what's happening now is, first of all, access, as you mentioned, is hugely important. But I also think that we don't have that reverence for authority anymore because we understand that that comes at a risk. You know, when that person doesn't have your best interest at heart, they can cause a lot of damage. And we've seen enough in world history to know that that's true. And suddenly there's a bit of distrust, which I think is healthy. Sure. Certainly balances the scales a little bit. Sure. And speaking of balancing the scales, you, in a way you're an antidote, or this is kind of your mission, as I understand it, is to be an antidote to that disinformation or misinformation around personal financial well-being. You provide a whole range of access and knowledge and research and, I guess, translation tools, right, for people who want to advance their understanding of or take more responsibility for their personal financial well-being. Tell me a little bit about how you got there. How does one become um, passionate about that? So to me, it's about empowerment. It comes down to if you feel like you have some sort of understanding of your finances, even if it's wrong, which is interesting. So Mm. it's like if you have this model of money and you're like, all right, I'm going to follow this money and you are completely off target. What that does is it gives you a little framework and suddenly you can measure and suddenly you can see it, it almost creates like a little scientific method of your own for your own money. If you have some sort of framework, if you can look it in the eye. And this is actually all we're saying to people is get something, whatever that thing is, as long as it's not, I'm going to give my money to some man to manage on my behalf. Mm, mm. Get some sort of idea of your own of what you want to do and then take it from there. Because if it's a bad system, you'll see it. 
this mm. is the cool thing about money. It shows itself very quickly, right? So a bad system in this case is better than no system. A bad system is better than no system. Absolutely better than no system. So give me a, a practical example of that. So you decide what you're going to do is you are going to pay off your debt and start an emergency fund and start investing all at the same time. Yeah. So now this is the thing. Money is fast and slow. It's mm -hmm. odd. It's a very odd thing that we have in our society. So you can implement financial change one paycheck at a time. And that is slow mm -hmm. because you have to wait every time for income to come in to do something about it. But then when it goes wrong, <laughs> it goes wrong really very quickly. quickly. Yeah. Right. So now you're sitting with the system. You're like, okay, I'm starting on day one. I'm doing three things with my money. And then you have to replace your clutch, which is like a real life story from my life this week. Oh, no, I know you say to be boring, but um, <laughs> Shame, no, there we go. My clutch needs to re be replaced. Never I, don't think, I don't think I can get more boring than that. Okay, so you start the system. You say, I'm going to do these three things at once, and then you need to replace a clutch on your car. Yeah. And then suddenly you realize the system is bad. Mm. The system is bad because you have to sell your investment your emergency fund isn't big enough and you have to take on more debt to cover that cost. Yeah, and you're probably penalized for doing some of those things because long money doesn't like being interrupted, right? That's so, true. Yeah. That's true. So now you can say, okay, I have a system. My system is flawed. What can I do? If you didn't have a system, you would fall from panic to panic. Mm. And I've been there as well. Trust me. So you, you go from panic to panic and you make a plan. This is like, it's the financial motto of the Van Yerden family will make a plan, you know, like you make a plan, but it's so stressful because, sure. because you have no structure. No framework. Right. Yeah. So how I got into this is actually through language. Um, I study linguistics. Okay. And I have no financial background at all. And when you study linguistics, what you learn is the function of language. Like, what does it do? Language is fascinating, more fascinating than money, I would say. And so I started working for Finweek magazine as a journalist. Okay. And then I would read through the personal finance section and go, I, I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> yeah. this, and this is, is supposed to be accessible. Right? I'm a journalist there. Yeah. At that time, I was already an award-winning journalist. Yeah. And I can't understand the personal finance section. Sure. I was like, no, that's not right. Something's missing here. Something is not right. And so this is my personal mission is to translate money into human. The problem is in this country, that is super, super, super hard because what, when we say money, we mean different things. Mm -hmm. A little bit of money is a lot, a lot more for me than for somebody else, sure, first of all. Sure. Then we've got that sticky little issue of 11 official languages. So how do you talk about money? What metaphors do you use to talk about money? Yeah, what um, analogies? What analogies? Is it, do money metaphors have positive associations or negative ones? How do you think about this? And this is um, my life's work. So you mentioned something really interesting up front, which I identify with, is you said, I don't have a financial background. And I mean, a lot of people might think when you say, I don't have a financial background, is I don't have a financial degree, or I didn't study accounting at school. But it's a little bit more than that in the sense that you meet some people who grew up in very financially astute or rigorous households and they inherited almost some of that 
thinking just by virtue of being there, right? Money was something discussed around the table, or business was part of the kind of the the, the conversation around the bry, or whatever it might be. And that's also a financial background. Is is just is it baked into your family's you know kind of culture? How important is that? Do you think in people's constructs around around money and their thinking around money is is what we inherit essentially from our parents? You know, if you if you use that definition, we all have a background in finance. Yeah, some of us just have like a to really a great or lesser degree, just yeah. a really poor background. So yeah. I'm in a really interesting place with my parents at the moment. So we grew up in a household where my parents were living above their means. Mm. You know, there was definitely uh, money; definitely had some sort of status symbol. You know, yeah. As, as yeah. the outward displays of money. That's why I have such a great sense of, you know, the difference between being rich and being wealthy sure you know because there's so visibility to it yeah right so there's that outward display but then that that inner stress about money Mm. you know um so what do you call it um an overdraft facility that was a big thing in our family that we discussed we didn't discuss what is our financial plan but like ooh, the overdraft facility is way in the read this time and you know our whole salary has to go in there to pay it off yes and so you absorb this stuff and then when i was a teenager my parents lost all of my mother's retirement funds in a pyramid scheme all of it and and we literally we were staying this house like this big old farmhouse and we were struggling to eat you know and like literally all of their money was gone all Mm. of my mother's retirement funds and stuff and you go out of that environment and you have a really specific sense of what money is Mm, mm. and what money does and what money is for and this is so interesting because sometimes people are like oh come and talk to us about money and i stand up and i say do you know what your money is for i think people feel disappointed in that but people don't know what they want money for but they know that they want money they just don't know why like Mm. what is the purpose to what end yeah yes and that's interesting so i think there's like a you know you don't really need to have a lot of financial knowledge but mindfulness is an, a critical component of good financial management. Just understanding what happens to you when you are in contact with money, that's really important. And a really big clue is how you grew up. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer a kind of a, a similar story, but with an opposite sort of impact, because I think this is quite interesting. So I grew up in a household where my folks, I think, did a very good job of living within their means, were really conservative with their spending, were really balanced. We didn't, you know, no really outward flashy declarations of wealth we went to public schools it was all very kind of conservative and they continued to run their lives really responsibly really well not spending beyond their means i think they've saved you know a percentage of their salaries their entire lives and now they're in a position where they'll be hopefully comfortable in in retirement my mom has just retired i'm the opposite i'm terrible with money admittedly terrible with money. And that's kind of weird for me because I look at them and look at all the lessons I learned from their behaviors and their patterns. And, and I'm, I'm wondering, is this a personality thing for me? And so I suppose there's a bit of nature and nurture, right? Some of us just have an unhealthy connection with money um, or, or a lack of appreciation for the role it plays in our lives. I'm, ta- like I'm, I'm awful. So I'm trying to figure out where's the balance there? And can I be fixed? It's so interesting because I had this exact conversation with my best friend mm. who grew up in some, like exactly your story, basically. And she said, but I don't understand because none of that translated to, yeah. to the three of them. The three kids are all dreadful, like all of their partners manage <laughs> their money. Yeah. And that's, that would be nice. <laughs> that's a really interesting thing. But I think, 
maybe this speaks more to priorities than to money. Mm. You know, if you don't, like, I like tinkering with my money because I like to see how things behave under different conditions. It's mm. interesting for me. If you don't find it interesting, don't. You know, like, sure. they, I don't think that everybody should have the same level of engagement as I do. Of because course, because yeah. to me, it's more of a hobby than it is a financial management situation. Yeah, yeah. I think if you have some basic stuff under control, you'll probably be fine. It's not that serious, you know? I mean, it's really serious when you don't have it. But if you're fairly comfortable and, you know, you're doing like the basics right, then so what? Okay. So I guess circling back to our original question, you know, we said that a lot of this is not part of the systems that we participate in, whether it's our formative education or the conversations we have relatively informally or socially, because there was an incentive kind of to keep some of the mystery around money in place. Like you said, willingly or unwillingly, that, that's definitely a part of the system we operate in. Where are you today? Tell us a little bit about Just One Lap, the work that you're doing specifically to combat that money mystery, if you like. And if that's not the right positioning, then please correct me. Um, yeah. So Just One Lap is a free-to-the-user financial education platform. Mm -hmm. And that's super important to me because, first of all, we don't sell any product okay. at all. It was initially when I joined five years ago, we did think about it to okay. go into kind of sales position. And what we realized is that nobody does this. Nobody does this just for the sake of doing it. You mm. know, like you don't send a kid to school and hope to sell them a product by the time they get out of it, you <laughs> sure. know, because they wouldn't learn anything. You would give biased views. And so I joined Just One Lap and I said, okay, let's try to do education just for the sake of education, financial education. Okay. And it's so funny because we work in the financial services industry. We're not a not-for-profit, although we are thinking about it. All right. So... We work in the financial services industry and how it works is that companies that we know to do a good job and that we know who keep their users' best interest at heart, we work with those companies. So ETF providers, mm. low-cost providers of banking products and whatever. We work with those companies. How do you evaluate that? Sorry, just a curious thing because, I mean, obviously businesses are complex and there's many moving parts and the bigger they are, the more complex they are. How do you evaluate the integrity of a client? What we normally say is, first of all, what is it going to cost our users to use them? Okay. Because this is the thing. So now this causes a bit of an issue in our industry because we have a complicated business model. Mm. And we have a complicated business model because it matters to us that this information is always free to our users. Yes. Then we speak to our clients and our clients say, but you've got this really engaged, really loyal user base. Why don't you charge them money for this information? Sure. And then I say, but we do. They are paying for this information because when I'm on a podcast and I talk about an ETF that I really like, that person who listens to the podcast buys the ETF and they pay the ETF provider. They okay. are paying a fee. So mm. the ETF provider should be the person who pays us then a fee for that referral, Got you. basically. Yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't really work that way because it's difficult to measure sure. and whatever. It's so funny because now we're working with, we have preferred partners now. Mm. So we're working with Outvest. Mm -hmm. And they do this really low cost robo-advisor RA service thing. But Grant Locke, who runs Outvest and who came up with the idea, is a remarkable, remarkable person. And he really also not profit driven, very much a man of our generation, you know, like mm -hmm. he's got this vision, everybody should have access, everybody should have access for free. So they came up with this product 
that literally doesn't exist anywhere in the world with a management fee of 0.2%. Wow. 0.2. I mean, that is unreal, mm. right? For a tiny market like this. Mm-hmm. So then I speak to Grant and I say, look, this is why I don't want to charge our users money. And he's like, oh, Chris, you're so ideological. Mm. And then I speak to somebody else about Grant and, and that person's like, oh, Grant is so ideological. <laughs> <You know? laughs> layers, we, we, yeah. We've just got this, like, we've got this industry, this kind of young fledgling industry in this country of people who care very, very much that everybody has access to financial services. Okay. And this is how we judge it. So we say, how much does it cost our users to go there? What do they get inside there? Mm-hmm. Is it diversified? Is it responsible? You know, even in the case of banking products, mm-hmm. you know, is mm-hmm. it easily accessible? Is it cheap? Can everybody get access? Is there some sort of barrier to entry? Because that's that's bullshit. You know, like that should they, that sure. shouldn't exist. And so that is that is the filter that we use. So there's this ecosystem essentially that you're building, right? Robust, sustainable, inclusive financial products, all businesses the knowledge around that, an informed customer, and essentially you're creating the dots between those different things. Do you think that's moving the needle in institutions or in players that are maybe less <laughs> geared towards that way of thinking? Or do you think, the, you know, if we think of the, like the big four banks, are they starting to think more about this kind of product and service? Not only by virtue of the fact that it's good business, but because they're becoming a little bit more conscious about the impact of their products? It's so interesting because when you build a financial institution on inequality, it's incredible how long you can survive on that model because of the huge income gap in our country. Sure, I mean, it's just, sure. it's unreal. Yeah. But then, so it's so interesting. When I joined Just One Lap, we went on this tour of, of stockbrokers in Johannesburg, Simon and I. Mm. And we sat down with these people and we said to everybody, who is your target audience? And everybody to a man, because they were all men, everybody said high net worth individuals. Yeah. This is just when I joined. I was like, something is wrong here. How can 10 different companies or 20 different companies all have the same target audience? And how come nobody is speaking to ordinary people? Sure. You know, and I mean ordinary people like me, but I also mean, you know, like I'm still a one percenter. I mean just ordinary people. Yeah. And then in that time, Capitec started to gain real traction. Mm, mm. And that started to look like a really good business model. And I was like, the money is there when oh, yeah. you include people. You just need to make a choice to include people. Like you can't... And be willing to do the work around that. Yes. Yeah. So... I know that we are a big irritation, especially to some of the older insurance type companies. Are um, you? Yes. How we, are you in irritation? Uh, we move a lot of money away from them. Okay. Because we say to people, look, you shouldn't be paying 6% for your RA. Okay. That is ridiculous. Yeah. You, it's your capital. It's your risk. And somebody else is taking 6% of your money every year. Why? Got you. Right. And then, and then people go, oh, shit. That's true. Yeah. And then they move it to a place that charges 0.2% and, and that's really irritating. So I know that we are a bit of a thorn in the side of these companies because even though we didn't set out to target high net worth individuals, you know, there's so little guidance in terms of money. If you have any sort of money, you end up finding our podcast in the end because you don't know what to do. Yeah. You don't know how to handle your money. Yeah. So I suppose the principles remain sound and true regardless of what sums you're talking about the 
really, whether it's 10 rand or 10,000 rand, the principles are essentially the same. The principles are the same. I think the problems that people face are different. Of course. And this is what's hard for me. So I started, I recently started working with a company called the Sariti Institute. It's Mm -hmm. an NPO. And they do early childhood development. And they asked me, would I come and speak to some of the people who work with small children in Mm. low-income areas Mm. to help them with their money? And I've been pondering this for a while because I, like, my privilege precludes me from having a meaningful conversation here. Mm. And this is interesting. I mean, this is what's hard also from a, you know, starting a big financial services business is you come from such a place of privilege that it's really difficult to understand the struggles of people who don't come from that place and to understand the financial struggles because the principles are all the same. You need to have some sort of emergency thing. You need to have some sort of asset that can pay you later, et cetera, et cetera. That is universal. But, you know, when you are living on a Sasa grant and you're taking care of four people, where are you going to find 10 rand for an emergency fund? Sure. Sure. You know, absolutely. and that's that's an interesting problem to solve. I haven't even come close. If this is your first time listening to the one-eyed man and you're wondering what I'm trying to achieve here, why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of season one? It's really short, I promise, and will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing this episode or the one-eyed man channel with, well, all of your friends in the entire world. And now Back to the show. You make a valid point around the importance of perspectives and being able to identify with that audience and speak a language, I mean, literally or figuratively, that they can identify with. But I suppose privilege needn't be a barrier. It can also be an opportunity, right? I I mean, I keep thinking of privilege in terms of a, (laughs) use the phrase, an epidermal trust fund. Um, how you use that is really, really important, right? People use trust funds in very different ways and for very different outcomes, but it needn't necessarily be a barrier. It can also be an enabler to impacting people's circumstances as well. So there's a balance there. So kind of a double-edged sword, right? So talk us through the practicalities of the Just One Lap ecosystem. You've got the website which people can access and tell me, you know, as a user, what do I experience when I, how, how do I interact with the product or the educational tools? What we try to do is we try to say wherever you are in your financial life will help you get to wherever you want to go. So you can come to us in debt and we have some resources to help you get out. Yeah. Resources in terms of educational resources, not in terms of like we'll hold your hand. Debt counseling necessarily. It's more more like, okay, how do I understand this? So, So the whole foundation of the business at this point for me is built on something that I like to refer to always as the five concepts. Yeah. To make you rich. So it's like if you understand these five basic things, you can make a good choice about money every time, regardless of where you are. Right. And so we start with the debt um, mm-hmm. to help people get out of that. So just to quickly give it its assets, its interest, inflation, compounding, and index tracking products. If you have some sort of sense of those five concepts, okay. then you can make really good choices. So what we say is, all right. Super, I'm like two out of five. That's, that's great. That's <laughs> so you're like, all right, <laughs> I'm enormously in debt. Why? I was enormously in debt personally when I was younger. Mm. And it was because I didn't understand interest or compounding. I didn't understand how those two things related to debt. Yeah. So now we say yeah, to people. Because they have an impact forwards and backwards. Don't yes, they? <laughs> yes, they do. And it's so funny because all of those things have like an evil twin, mm, except for index course. tracking products. So they all have an upside and a downside. So. 
we say to people, all right, if you understand these five concepts, then we can help you understand why it's so difficult to get out of date and we can help you understand what to do about it. Yeah. Then people come to us and they have just started working. They have no debt, but they have no idea what to do with their money. Then sure. we say, all right, you probably need an emergency fund. You definitely need an emergency fund, but you probably need some insurance to protect the stuff that you have that enable you to do your job, so your body, and then your computer and your car, basically, you know, the, you. the things yeah. that allow the essentials. you yeah. Yeah, to do your job. You need to protect that stuff. And we help you do that. So we help you think through how big your emergency fund should be, where you should keep it, you know, how, what type of insurance should you have? How much should you care? When can you self-insure? That sort of thing. And that's all available for free on the website. And then from there, we say, okay, well, now you're ready to accumulate some assets. How can you think about assets? And how can they help you in the future? And then eventually people get to a point where they go, okay, now I've got tax-free savings account sorted out. I've got a retirement annuity product. I've got an emergency fund. I'm ready to play. And then we say, okay, how do you think about individual stock investments? And that's where Simon shines. So I do all of this like basic stuff. And then Simon is sort the person. Sort of housekeeping, if yes, you like. Yeah. Yes, And Simon is the person who's like, all right, now you need to look at company valuations and la, 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 la. And he takes people to the next level and then eventually to an active trading thing, if that's where you want to go. Okay. For me, I never want to go into individual shares and I never want to go into active trading. It's just not interesting to me. I don't okay. find it playful and, and fun in that way. Mm. So that's all available on justonelap.com as free content that you Amazing. can grab. And then we've got the two podcasts. We've got the Fat Wallet Show, which I host, and then yeah. we've got JSE Direct, which is hosted by Simon. And we basically, what's really cool about the Fat Wallet Show is that we do case studies. People write us and say, this is my problem. And it's different levels. You know, sometimes it's people who've just started working. Sometimes it's people who have like millions of rands. And they say, this is the thing that I'm struggling with. This yeah. is my background. And I don't know how to think about this. And we discuss it on the podcast, which is so helpful to people because it gives you a sense of, you know, you tend to think when you start on this financial journey, there's one way. And what you don't realize is there are as many ways as there are people on earth. Mm, you can mm. do whatever you want. There's no right way. And it's really cool to see the same concepts applied to different circumstances mm. because it gives you a, a fuller sense of what it is that people deal with in their finances. And people can find the podcast on the website or they can access them via any podcasting platform, right? So they're available on all of those streams. That's incredible. That's really, really cool. How often do you post shows? Every week. Oh, my word. That's a lot of work. Yeah, it is a lot of work. So we've done, I think we're sitting on, we're recording 216 this, That's exceptional. This, this week. Well done to you. Thank you. That's amazing. It's amazing because it's so community driven though. It, it does take a lot of the pressure off. You know, because it's weird how people who have never met each other and who come from all different backgrounds at one point in time would all struggle with the same thing. Mm. It happens so often. People are like, so one week I did a show that's just like, I need to help my parents. Yeah. And we got like eight different emails from oh, different wow. people in different circumstances wanting to help their parents or wanting to figure out. Yeah, you could do a season just on that topic, right? Right. Yeah. right. Sure. That's incredible. Wow. Well done. Thank you. Um, you spoke a little bit earlier on about the business model for Just One Lap and that you're thinking of potentially even a not-for-profit. Um, talk me through some of the thinking around that and what's next for you and the business as you move forward. So if we can go into the NPO route, then what we can do is a lot of our users want to help us. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so we never want to put anything behind any sort of paywall because this information should be free. This information should have been free all along. Sure. Right. 
So we never want to put anything behind a paywall. But a lot of times users are like, they send us like take a lot vouchers, or easy equities vouchers and stuff <laughs> just to thank us and to support us. That's amazing. So what we were thinking is if we go the NPO route, then that can be a tax deduction. Gotcha. And that might be worthwhile for people who feel like they want to support us. It also makes it easier in terms of our corporate clients. Mm. Because at the moment, like in a corporate environment, education and marketing are the same. And what we're saying is they are not the same. They can't be the same. We can't do education and say, we're going to give you 80 leads. That's not how education works. It takes a long time. So mm. what we've found is from the time somebody discovers the podcast to the time when they're ready to make their first investment, that's about three years. Mm. Because it takes three years, paycheck by paycheck, to build the emergency do fund, the to get that stuff ready. And you have to have, like, it's a slow burn and you have to have time to do that. And you can't do that from a marketing budget because marketing people want it yesterday. They want a conversion yesterday. So hmm. the thinking is if we can go the not-for-profit route, that money can come from a different place in the business. Sure. And that would make it easier for us to sustain ourselves. The problem is... There are, according to our, we've got like some tax people who do work for us. And apparently there are about five people at SARS who deal with NPOs. And it's apparently a bit of a nightmare to get in that direction. So we've okay. been putting it off just because we've been able to make this business model work for the most part. Yeah. But it's definitely in the works for us. I suppose there's also, and I mean, this is a slight tangent, but it's maybe not necessarily a conversation of either or. Maybe it's both and. Yes. Right? There's the option of doing both simultaneously. Definitely. Do you do like coaching? Do you steer away from that? Are you, I suppose there's a temptation between interventions and mm -hmm. kind of quite personalized work and creating products that everybody can access and can reach a 1,000 people or 10,000 people at once. How do you balance your time and energy between creating things that everyone can access and being very kind of focused on one client's needs or, or, or outcomes? The only time we do one client's need is when we deal with their question in the podcast. Okay. Just because it's, first of all, we don't have the resources. Sure. There's two of us. The, our contributors all work for free on Just One Lap, which is amazing because mm. we've got people who have, you know, doctorates in tax mm. who are writing for us for free because mm. they feel very strongly that this is important work. Mm as we do, which is wonderful. The other thing is people have a really weird, and this is true for money, and I think it's true for like health as well. People have this really weird thing where if you at the wrong moment tell somebody to do something, they become incredibly resistant to hmm. your idea. That's why it's not like my friends don't come to me for money advice. Sure. Because they just, they're not in that place where it's ready. And it's mm. so funny because my parents, now that my mother is retiring, now we can have this conversation. Mm. I've been doing this for five years. Yeah. Now we can have the conversation. So people are very resistant to getting advice that they didn't ask for. Yeah. No, and, of and course. And sometimes somebody comes to you with a problem and you say, this is the solution and they're not ready to hear the solution. And so education helps take away that resistance because you go and take the things that you need you know the information that you need in that moment that is available to you when you need it in the moment and then you're open to that information and now we can have a conversation you know financial advice is a deeply personal thing and i honestly mm. think that financial advice should be given by therapists and not by financial mm. advisors because 
you know, what happens with us with money has to do with our sense of security. It has to do sure. with our place in the world. It has to do with, you know, ego. Uh, ego. It has to do with self-esteem. It has to do with empowerment. It's, it's so complex and it's so deep. And so what we want to say to people is we don't want it to scare you anymore. But now you have to go and do that work yourself. You have to go and figure out where this fits in. Yeah, and I think you make such a valid point around personal responsibility as well. I mean, advice is a wonderful thing, but it's also a very dangerous thing because taking somebody's advice means often that you include them in the level of accountability you place on the outcomes, right? The, 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 the results of what I've always been very cautious about advice for that same reason is, um, you know, if, if you, I can guide you, I can share experiences, which is a, a lot of what you're doing in the podcast where you're essentially using anecdotal evidence or experience shares as a way to translate me. And people can take, I guess, bits and pieces out of that, which is an extremely powerful way to do that work rather than saying this is the way you must do it and everybody should do it this way. Um, Chris, you're doing amazing work. Well done. That's really, really powerful stuff. How can listeners that, you know, kind of have been either motivated by what they've heard in terms of their own personal construct or maybe represent institutions or businesses that want to connect with you, how can they do that? What's the best way to reach out and find the work that you're doing? So just one lap.com, everything is there. You can reach out to us on the website and do what you need to do there. Super. That sounds incredible. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been really enlightening. Are there any sort of final thoughts that you'd want to leave with people around if they're feeling particularly insecure or uncomfortable with where they are financially at the moment? What one gem would you leave them with? So I come from a family where like my dad is a blue collar worker. We lost all of our money. I got into a hundred thousand rands worth of debt when I was in my twenties, like a fool. And I managed to figure this out. And if I can do it, you can do it. Seriously, there's nothing to it. I love that. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. And I look forward to listening to some of the Fat Wallet shows and finally having a fat wallet. That's really cool. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, friend. Take it easy. Thanks. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit mikestopforth.com, click on the podcast link, and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, a one-eyed man slash person is king. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.